Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. My, ne- my name is uh, Dino Plastis, and I'm the director of uh, Jefferson Aortic Center. And it's a great privilege uh, to uh, be the guest editor in a wonderful series on the surgical management of acute aortic dissections. Uh, I will give uh, a few more seconds uh, for people to log in and uh, we're going to start uh, very shortly. Uh, It's very interesting that uh, this series started, uh, the idea of that series started by Joel Dunning, uh, whom I thank him for that. Uh, We were in a meeting together in Moscow approximately a year ago and he came with this wonderful idea. Taking that opportunity, uh, I would like to thank uh, uh, Catherine Joyce and her team. Uh, They did a wonderful job to put all of us together. Uh, And of course, uh, um, I would like to thank the staff at the CTSnet uh, for working hard to make that happen. Um, uh, I would like you uh, right now uh, to introduce you the agenda. Uh, of course, uh, we had excellent videos by all the participants. Uh, they presented a lot of uh, aspects of management, management of aortic dissection. Of course, there are a number of things that can be, uh, that will be discussed uh, in this uh, webinar. And that being said, uh, uh, I'm very happy and privileged to have with us uh, Josh Green from the University of Pennsylvania, Roland Assi from Yale, uh, my friend Ibrahim Sultan from the University of Pittsburgh, Chris Malazer from Northwestern, and Derek Brinster uh, from Lenox Hill Hospital. All of them are great aortic surgeons, and they represent um, uh, different uh, schools of thinking. Uh, and I think uh, that will give an opportunity to all the participants in this webinar uh, to listen what uh, the experts are saying. Uh, Josh, if you don't mind to start, and introduce yourself, and then we'll go to Roland. Yeah, good morning, Uh, Joshua Graham. I'm a faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. I do uh, complex aortic surgery from Texas originally. Roland. Uh, Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Roland Arce. I'm on faculty at Yale. Uh, I'm one of the surgeons at the Yale Aortic Institute, and uh, uh, we perform a complex open endovascular aortic surgery here. Ibrahim. Yeah, thank you again, Dinas, for having us. My name is Ibrahim Salta. I'm an, uh, I'm an adult cardiac surgeon and aortic surgeon at the uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and I oversee the Center for Thoracic Aortic Diseases at UPMC. Excellent. And Chris? Hi, I'm Chris Malasery. I'm a cardiac surgeon at Northwest Memorial Hospital. I'm professor of surgery at Northwestern University. Uh, uh, Derek, uh, I'm not sure if he's on, uh, he's finishing his surgery, he just uh, called us to let us know about that, uh, but if he has not logged in yet, uh, I'm expecting, expecting him to log in very quickly. Uh, that being said, uh, uh, I would like to uh, start the discussion, uh, and as I said, uh, we had uh, wonderful videos, uh, very nicely done by all the participants, but I would like to start that discussion with a very simple question. A patient comes with a type A dissection uh, and you get a phone call from an emergency room. How do you handle the transfer? I mean, these people are quite sick. Um, they have either hypertension or hypotension. Uh, what do you instruct? How do you instruct the emergency room physicians as to what to do and uh, what do you do with the transfer? We'll start with Josh. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's uh, critical to get these people to your institution promptly, uh, while at the same time ensuring that they're safe, uh, you know, in the interval time period and that uh, they aren't sort of forgotten about at the outside hospital. 
So usually we like to talk to the uh, physician taking direct care of the patient. So there's less, you know, telephone, so to speak, and more direct communication. Um, we like to get a little bit more about the past medical history of the patient, uh, what, co uh, what kind of comorbidities they have, how they presented, how they're doing currently, what kind of drips, if any, they're on, and their current hemodynamics. Uh, and usually you can get a pretty good idea, like a broad uh, brushstroke on, on how the patient's doing. We'll give them some insight about uh, blood pressure management. A lot of these people are hypertensive at baseline. And they require, you know, it's sort of a, a complex issue is they require perfusion pressure to the brain. And sometimes their coronaries, while at the same time the aorta is, is the main issue at hand. So we like to keep their blood pressures, you know, less than 120. Um, and uh, a lot of these institutions will not place A-lines before transfer. I don't think it should slow down the transfer. And I think it's key at Penn, we uh, bring these folks directly to the uh, operating room. Uh, we don't delay by taking them to the ICU unless there's some special circumstance. And uh, they bring their imaging with them as well. It's uh, critically important for us to see, uh, you know, the nature of the dissection and the aneurysmal disease and the ascending or, uh, or arch and what their access vessels look like. Ibrahim, uh, 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 in the same uh, uh, topic, do you take the patients directly to the operating room irrespective of what the issue is? Uh, or you take them to the ICU, uh, try to see what's happening with the patient, and then, then based on that, take them very quickly in the operating room. Yeah, I think, Dennis, that's an important point. So I think, as you said, there's different school of thought, and uh, and we operate on everyone, including malperfusion, including cerebral or visceral malperfusion. So uh, the way it works is, you know, we have a fairly large system. We have 42 hospital systems. So, and even outside of that system, as soon as we get a phone call, the, the helicopter's already on the way to that ER, even before the, we get the referring doc on the phone with us. Uh, so they're already there, they're picking up the patient essentially. So that's automatically there. So the only difference is we get the information. So if it's a type aortic dissection, uh, which we know, and, and we can look at the films uh, remotely at times, uh, you know, they, fl they fly in directly to our operating room. Uh, and so at okay. that point, you know, everyone gets activated, the entire team. Uh, Roland, what is the feeling at Yale? Um, Let's say you get a patient who they tell you that he's uh, comatose, for example, has type A dissection, 85-year-old person. Now, let me give a very simple example because these are the common things that we are we face as an aortic surgeon. 85-year-old who is comatose, has a type A dissection, they manage him in the emergency room, and then they call you. What do you do with that patient? Do you take him directly to the OR? Do you evaluate him in the OR? Do you take them to the ICU? How do you handle that situation? So in general here, um, you know, our philosophy is, you know, the moment we get the phone call and we have a very good referral central uh, Yale access, by the time we hang up on the phone and if we hear dissection, aortic dissection, uh, the OR has been alerted and transport is being arranged. And we, in our mind, would like to actually confirm or, uh, you know, make the diagnosis in the OR rather than trying to figure out over the phone and occasionally we have this patient who shows up and has a you know very stable type B dissection. It's not a type A. That's fine. Everyone goes back home, and you know we manage the patient appropriately. But we we basically we have no uh, you know no one that is turned down from surgery. And and for some patients that if for some reason if we talk to the family and you know there's a decision not to proceed with surgery, we'll we'll, we'll make the decision on the operating room table before making a decision. So we don't really put uh, any delay. Now, one thing that you know was a little bit of a challenge was during COVID, but where to take these patients when there's an unsure COVID diagnosis. And what the hospital was very good at doing here is quickly transforming a couple of the operating rooms right now that could be a COVID compatible, uh, if that's a good word to say, you know, for a cardiac surgery. And for patients who don't have a COVID test that is that has resulted, we treat them as if they have COVID and we put them in a COVID room and we do the operation as if they have COVID. So we did, that didn't cause major delays neither. I'm glad that you answered that question. Actually, this was the question I was, I was planning to ask Chris, how did you handle patients in the COVID era? Because, you know, it takes a couple of hours to get the COVID test back, but an emergency type of dissection has to go to the operating room. Uh, uh, what is the feeling at Northwestern, Chris? How do you handle that situation? And how do you handle overall uh, type A or dissections? Well, type A aortic dissections, uh, uh, time is, uh, is uh, life. So we have to get the patients in the operating room as soon as possible. 
for uh, for our program. We've taken lessons from our friends at Penn and Pittsburgh. We also instituted a direct to OR protocol, and we found that we can cut a good 70 minutes off as opposed to having the patient making a pit stop in the ICU. Uh, COVID has, um, has uh, posed some challenges for these uh, rapid protocols, but um, there's some tricks you can do. We always insist that the COVID test is done at the ER. So by the time they get to our hospital, we at least have a sense. Um, we treat um, patients in three fashions. Either we know for sure they're not COVID, in which case we uh, follow normal protocols. For indeterminate cases, we treat those patients as if they had COVID. So um, everyone wears uh, PPEs and um, there are staging areas outside the OR to decontaminate. So we do take it seriously, but we have not found that to be an impediment to treating our patients with acute type A aortic dissections. Now, I, I think uh, the consensus, and I, I agree, I think the consensus is get the patient to the operating room as soon as possible, make the diagnosis and take action uh, in the operating room as fast as possible. Just to inform the participants, uh, you know, they can do questions and uh, Jackie McGee is next to me here. And she will, uh, she will uh, uh, ask questions. Uh, and I will ask her to ask uh, the first question. Hi, so um, we have, can you unmute? We have William Wang, and he said his, the biggest concern is pericardial effusion and the patient's neurologic status. Um, he um, says, you know, you know, there's, there's no, no use in the surgery, obviously, if their neurologic um, status is poor. Um, any comments for that? Uh, actually, it's a, it's a good question, and I, it is my next question. Because, uh, okay, we have a type of dissection, we know that's an emergency, we know it has to go to the operating room. Majority of them, they have, um, they, they have no malperfusion, but there are patients who have uh, malperfusion, particularly gut and, uh, and brain, uh, or peripheral, you know, like lower extremities. How do we handle those patients? And, and, and I want to be specific about that. Again, you have a 70-year-old patient. He comes, has a type or dissection, and he has a stroke, and it's pretty significant. Um, or he has evidence of bowel ischemia. Um, what do we do with that? Uh, Michigan uh, believes that some of these patients should be, we should wait in some of those patients. So to start again from Josh, uh, significant malperfusion with symptoms. It's not on, only a radiographic finding, but you have symptoms. How do you handle those, particularly gut and brain ischemia? Yeah, I think uh, the Michigan group did a really great job at, at separating sort of malperfusion, whether it's dynamic or static on CTA, and then a malperfusion syndrome. So not just uh, radiographic signs, but uh, marrying that with clinical stuff. So elevated lactate, um, uh, severe abdominal pain, things of that nature, or a profound stroke on exam. I think it really gets to take the, the, the whole patient into consideration. If you have a, you know, an elderly patient, 70, 80 year old patient, we actually had this uh, overnight um, with profound neurologic deficits uh, and, and, and multiple comorbidities. I think you have to have a realistic conversation with the family regarding their, their potential outcome. We know patients going into the OR with a, a devastating stroke prior to type A repair do not fare well. And uh, so I think being really uh, open with the patient's uh, family is critical. Uh, the other thing is to really tease out, uh, do they have a neuro exam before they're intubated, if they're intubated? Um, and then if you have any radiographic uh, imaging of the head to see how devastating the stroke is. Um, you know, if patients come in with uh, malperfusion uh, just on a scan to their brain, uh, but clinically their deficits are minimal, we would still proceed to the operating room for a proximal repair. Uh, you know, gut, extreme gut malperfusion, maybe uh, one of the other panelists can, can weigh in as well, but, you know, gut malperfusion um, with a lactate above 10, uh, severe abdominal pain, and perhaps fluid in the abdomen if it's a delayed presentation, those patients are not going to do well. Uh, you know, the Emory group does uh, you know, upfront T-bars uh, to increase true lumen flow, and as you mentioned, the Michigan group does uh, fenestration with selective stenting. So those are options because we know that uh, those folks going straight to the operating room usually have bad outcomes. So Ibrahim, to be very specific, so the patient is hemodynamically stable, but there is no pericardial effusion, maybe moderate AI and, 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 and severe uh, gut malperfusion with gut ischemia. 
do you take him to surgery to fix the gut? Maybe you have to take some of the bowel out and stabilize the situation. Do you do an angiogram? How, how do you, how, how you would handle a patient like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, I think again, it's a, it's a tough situation, but this is something we see not infrequently. So uh, I think unless it is, so I think two things, if it's specific gut only malperfusion, I think that's relatively easy to go after. But I think if it, this is a combination of an absent femoral pulse with, you know, essentially a, a dead leg, a dead gut and a stroke, that's three bed malperfusion, that's almost a 80, 90% mortality. But if it's specifically gut only, I, I would most likely operate on them uh, do a proximal repair and then do a laparotomy to see uh, if anything needs to be resected, especially because these patients will come in relatively early on in the course. Now, if this is somebody who's been in a nursing home for the past five days and has essentially, you know, I mean, cats out of the back, that's a, that's a very different story. Roland? So uh, I agree, these are high-risk operations, but in general, uh, we still offer surgery. And in our experience, actually, we've had more uh, type A dissection with multi-organ malperfusion than uh, type A uh, dissection without significant malperfusion here. And almost all these patients had full recovery. I think the key is the duration of the malperfusion syndrome more than anything else. And even with a patient, the most recent one we did a few days ago had a, had a stroke uh, with a dense deficit on one side of the body, had an acute limb ischemia, one kidney that was out with acute kidney injury and altered mental status. And, you know, we still believe in the basic principle of true lumen perfusion as soon as possible. So we basically just take the patient to the OR, put just the necessary lines, open up the chest and go on bypass the true lumen. And for the most part, if these patients were diagnosed in an ER and trans transferred immediately to us, we're having very good result uh, uh, reversing the injury. That's different if someone who's arresting or completely in a comatose state who has had symptoms for many, many hours and has been undiagnosed, obviously there, I think, uh, you know, an opportunity has been wasted. I see. Chris? I agree with um, uh, everything that's been said. I think malperfusion is a difficult um, syndrome to manage. For stroke, um, we... I, I, I say, um, I would say give that patient a chance, especially if you could get them early, I think six hours uh, within the onset of neurologic uh, malperfusion. I think it's a very reasonable, um, reasonable time frame to take the patient to the operating room. And you can often reverse some severe uh, cerebral malperfusion. Now for leg ischemia, we also take them directly OR. At the same time, you're doing the um, type A dissection. You can also do procedures to reperfuse the leg. Uh, you can do a uh, fem-fem crossover bypass. You can also put a perfusion cannula in that leg that's malperfused. I think bowel malperfusion is the hardest one to manage. I think if it's just malperfusion and ischemia, we take the patient directly to the OR for a definitive type A repair, restore uh, uh, blood flow in the true lumen. But if it is in fact infarction, and sometimes you can tell because you got a CT scan, if it is an infarction, then maybe uh, by, the, uh, by some groups, uh, Michigan being the uh, prime group, that that would be a group of patients that you would not take directly to the operating room. Yeah, I think uh, one has to individualize, I agree with you. And uh, uh, as long as we want to be aggressive, aggressive in management uh, of these patients, we have to realize that some patients cannot be salvageable. You know, the disease is a very lethal disease uh, with a very high mortality rate, even in the 21st century. So one has to use judgment, you know, and particularly in elderly individuals with multiple perfusions. Uh, let me go to a very important topic. Um, and I will connect two questions here. Um, uh, cannulation strategy, uh, and of course there are pros, pros and cons in everything, uh, in association with hypothermia. Uh, uh, moderate or deep. Uh, I don't want you guys to go, you know, the, the, you can go plus and minus for everything. But starting from Chris, uh, what is your cannulation strategy and what type of hypothermia do you use? Do you go to moderate degree? You cool down? What is your feeling about that? For most of our patients, we do axillary artery cannulation. Uh, we think that axillary artery cannulation is the best way to um, do anti-grade systemic perfusion um, and also, um, it gives you the ability to do anti-grade cerebral perfusion. Uh, when we do anti-grade cerebral perfusion for a circulatory arrest, we do moderate hypothermia. 
And I think the data bears out that um, uh, axillary uh, compared to femoral has a better uh, mortality rate and better stroke rates. Um, uh, the reason I do that is because uh, with axillary artery uh, cannulation, um, uh, we're prepared for any sort of surprises that we find during the operation, mainly, meaning that uh, if we have to do a total arch operation, uh, then we're ready to do that. So it gives me the most flexibility um, to manage whatever we find in the operating room. Roland, what do you think? Uh, I, I pretty much agree with Chris. Um, however, I must say that our preferred cannulation is still direct uh, aortic cannulation with wire in the true lumen with TE. However, more and more we're, we're kind of moving towards axillary cannulation just because it's such a, a nice stable platform and very versatile. You can really do a lot of the operation that is simplified because of the axillary cannulation. Uh, the one thing that we almost never do is femoral cannulation. We feel that it's a little bit unpredictable what you're flowing and what you're perfusing uh, with femoral cannulation, but pretty much our go-to is central cannulation directly with a wire or uh, axillary cannulation. And what about uh, Ibrahim? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the fundamental point, as Chris pointed out, I think integrate perfusion is, is, is key to reduce uh, stroke. But uh, we use our default is central cannulation virtually for everyone, unless there's a large enough uh, circumferential or primary arch tear where we, you can potentially make that worse. So our standard protocol is, is direct central cannulation. You know, we think it saves some time. And, and typically we use an arch first technique in most of our patients. So as soon as we start sewing the arch vessels, we sequentially, uh, we sequentially use cerebral perfusion uh, that way. So but that's been our standard. And Josh? Uh, yeah, I don't have much to add. You know, I think uh, something that uh, Ibrahim just touched on was, and maybe Ron as well, is, uh, you know, it depends on really the status of the patient. If the patient's unstable, um, you know, axillary cannulation is great for, for uh, you know, a zone two or total arch. Um, you can just transfer right into a, an ACP platform. But if they're unstable, if they've got a big effusion, uh, if, if uh, anesthesia is having a hard time keeping their blood pressure up, I think getting true lumen flow as quickly as possible with uh, direct aortic cannulation with a wire in the true lumen uh, under echo guidance is, is great because then you really, you know, uh, pressurize that true lumen. And if you do have sort of a quasi malperfused state, that gets all remedied pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to have, uh, we have the ability to do polls. So we're going to send a poll, uh, to launch a poll on what people believe on moderate hypothermia versus deep hypothermia. So please uh, uh, try to do the best you can uh, to see, and we're going to share those polls, uh, you know, in a little bit. Uh, but to go to continue to the same question, I have to admit that, you know, uh, people have to be feel comfortable, particularly in an emergency. So what is the, mo whatever makes you very comfortable in cannulating, and again, there are pros and cons in every type of cannulation, uh, it's important to do particularly for non-aortic surgeons. Uh, if you feel comfortable with ephemeral cannulation, please do that. If you feel comfortable with subclavian, do or direct aortic cannulation. Um, we, we have to recognize that the experience plays an important role in all this. And, and that is why safety uh, is, is, is an important part uh, when uh, surgeons, even aortic surgeons do that. Uh, by the way, modern hypothermia, <laughs> almost 72%, uh, deep hypothermia, 28%. Uh, so moderate hypothermia is winning <laughs> everywhere. Um, I'm a little bit of an older school. I like deep hypothermia, but uh, that, that's, th this is what it is. Let me ask you something. Um, a brain protection obviously is very critical uh, to that. Uh, what about uh, anti-grade versus retrograde cerebral perfusion? Uh, and I would like to start with Ronald. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, they are, they are, they are, Yale in the past used to do only deep hypothermia without any, any adjuncts. Um, uh, and deep hypothermia is not bad, by the way, it's, it's, it's great. But what is the current way of thinking in terms of uh, hypothermia with uh, RCP versus ACP? Okay, that's a great question. So uh, things have changed at Yale. Everyone will have their brain perfused in a way or another. In terms of the degree of hypothermia, uh, you know, I strongly, and we as a group strongly believe in deep hypothermia for everyone with type A dissection. 
And the reason is not just for cerebral protection because we can always perfuse the brain and the brain you can perfuse it at normal thermia, it's fine. But it's protection of the rest of the body, including the spine. And I'm saying this because when you plan for a deep hypothermia and you go on circle rest and you find that you have to do much more work than you expect, if you cannot cool anymore, whatever, whatever temperature you are. And we're very liberal at, at dropping anti-grade TVAR, what we call a frozen elephant trunk in these patients. And there is an increased risk of spinal uh, cord ischemia if, and, and we think that the deep hypothermia actually helps with protection of the spine in these cases, in addition to other technical aspects like the, the, the size and the length of the stem. So we think that the safest approach is deep hypothermia. In terms of perfusion, uh, we employ RCP and anti-gracial perfusion in almost all patients with complex uh, reconstruction that need more than just a hemi-arch reconstruction. Usually for a circle rest time less than 35 minutes or 40 minutes, we think that RCP is probably good enough uh, with in, 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 in conjunction with deep hypothermic uh, arrest. For anything that's gonna take more than a hemi-arch or in other words, more than half an hour of reconstruction, we start with RCP until we debris the aortic arch. And by the time we're starting our reconstruction, we switch to ACP. I see. Uh, what about uh, Sultan? What do you guys do with that? Yeah, Dino, so it's the same kind of philosophy. All, you know, our default operation is a zone three total arch with a frozen elephant trunk. So that's our default type A operation. Uh, so, but if we were to do a hemi-arch, we would use deep hypothermia with RCP. Uh, anything, you know, if we were doing a total arch, that's, you know, we do integrate cerebral perfusion uh, bilateral uh, with using ACP. And we use deep hypothermia. And I think even though moderate is trendy for aneurysmal surgery, I mean, uh, uh, there are no data necessarily, I mean, to show that it's superior in any way. Uh, in fact, you know, most of the prospective uh, randomized data that's come out of aneurysm surgery that Brad Leschenauer did using MRI data shows that ACP has a higher embolic uh, event. But having said that, for longer periods of ischemia, I think antigrade is, is key. Uh, but we definitely do not hesitate to cool. Uh, and, and I think that's great. Uh, one uh, point I want to make, uh, particularly for people who face that emergency in the middle of the night, and uh, they are not aortic surgeons to be able to handle all the circumstances, deep hypothermia gives you a little bit of safety. Uh, and and uh, please do not hesitate to do that, um, particularly as Roland said, you know, you may face a problem that you are stuck now and you cannot uh, do any more hypothermia. I, I, want, I have a lot of questions here and uh, I'm glad that Jack is next to me because I don't know what I will do with all this, but uh, very nice questions. And I want you to give me yes or no. Uh, like, for example, uh, uh, the, the question is, what you would do for a patient with previous cardiac surgery and aortic dissection? Do you take them to the OR directly or you work them up in the ICU first? I, I don't want you guys to elaborate. Do you take them to the OR or you work them up a little bit more? Because that's a special circumstance. Chris. Yeah, the issue with uh, reoperative surgery, um, you have options, especially if the patient has had a previous coronary bypass grafting. I think it's worth it to take the patient to get some additional imaging of the coronary arteries. You could take him to um, angiogram. However, if you get a Marfan patient who had a previous mitral valve repair and now has a type aortic dissection, there's really no reason to wait for that patient. We take that patient directly to the OR. I, I agree with Chris, and, and I don't want you guys, I don't have enough time for everybody to answer, but I think Chris's answers exemplifies what to do given different circumstances. Um, uh, so uh, uh, all patients with type A or dissection, strong family history of coronary disease, normal perfusion, hemodynamically stable, coronary angiogram pre-surgery, all patient, strong family history. Uh, let's say normal LVF, left ventricular ejection fraction. Do you take that guy to surgery? Uh, Roland, what do you think? It's an interesting question. No. Yes, great question, but we almost cast no one with a dissection. Actually, that'll be amazing if you find a cardiologist who's willing to put a catheter in a dissected aortic root. Uh, but the, the other answer is, you know, you do the operation and if you have any abnormalities on the echo coming off bypass, we just bypass the territory. What about if you do a CT coronary angiogram? That's an option, you know? Uh, that well, may be an option under those circumstances, you know? So that, That's an option for patients who got a CTA that was gated at the first time, but I would not repeat a CTA within hours 
just to look at the coronaries. The coronaries. Ibrahim? Yeah, I agree with that. We, we, we don't usually, we don't cap at all if the CTA allows, if, if for some reason they get a gated CTA, we look at the prox cores and we've gotten pretty good at that just because of tower CTs and things uh, to kind of judge how tight those leases oh, are. Uncommon to, uh, to cap them before. Yes. I think it's just a waste of time. Yeah. Let me ask you one question, a very interesting question. Uh, what do you do with the patient who arrests on the table before, before, you know, prep and drape? And patients in the ward has happened to me a couple of times, I have to admit. Uh, you are in the operating room. Do you proceed? How do you handle that? Uh, Joshua. Yeah, again, I, I, I sound like a broken record, but I think it all depends on sort of the patient. If you've got an 85-year-old you're going to take a swing for, that might be different from a 40-year-old that's hypertensive. Um, but a lot of times these patients um, just have an effusion that needs to be drained. So if you can open the chest quickly uh, and slowly, slowly drain the pericardial effusion, um, you might be able to catch up. I mean, I, I think it's key at that point that uh, you have open communication with anesthesia. So they're not bolusing a lot of drugs because uh, once you open the pericardium, it can be a big problem if the blood pressure is 250. Um, so I think it's it's definitely worth a shot. I mean, all these uh, type A's represent a you know, you know catastrophe, uh, and so if you can just prep and drape, forego the lines, and, and open the chest as quickly as possible. Of course, you know uh, you have also the option to put him on fem-fem bypass. You know, particularly if you knew that the patient had uh, had uh, puls pulses in the leg. Chris, what do you think about that situation? I think that's the one situation where we would do femoral bypass on that one because that's the quickest way to get the patient on um, on um, on the pump. So uh, I, I agree with that. The operating room, then, uh, and they code unexpectedly. Um, they're going to go on pump through the groin, and then do everything that Josh says as well. Then you have time to take a look whether or not there's pericardial fusion. You can open the chest, but that may be the one scenario where femoral um, cannulation is indicated. Excellent, we have many more aspects to deal with. So uh, let me go to the next topic, you know, addressing the issue of, of the aortic root. And let's start from Ibrahim. I mean, the aortic root is a four centimeters, maybe 4.3 centimeters. It is not six or 5.5. And the patient has severe AI. Uh, what do you do with uh, with the valve? Do you resuspend the valve or you replace the valve? What you would recommend? Uh, uncomplicated type A or dissection, patient is hemodynamically stable, there's no malperfusion. What do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, I think anything over four and a half, we typically would do a root replacement, valve sparing or, or, or otherwise. Uh, anything less than four and a half, closer to four, especially in a larger man, uh, where the index is, is, is likely to be, to be low, we would just resuspend. Uh, but if, if the root, you know, if the sinus segments look dilated, thinned out of phase, we have a low threshold of- uh, Would you just preserve the root and replace the aortic valve? Exceptionally rare, unless you're doing an 80 something year old, I think. So. Yeah. It doesn't uh, what about Joshua? Yeah. What do you think about that? So patient has a four centimeter root. It's not like five and a half or something where you say, well, I have to do a root replacement, but still there is a significant AI. Uh, do you preserve that aortic root? Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, especially in, in the younger patient, the Marfan's patient, um, if the valve leaflets themselves look normal, the sinus segment, sinus segment is sort of free from uh, too much disease or damage from the dissection. Uh, then we would either do a, a valve spraying root um, uh, if you can. Uh, and if you can't, uh, you know, if you have to replace your valve spraying root, if the root looks okay and it's four or less, uh, then we would just resuspend and, and do felt neomedia. Uh, and this is the standard of care, I have to admit. This is the standard of care. But again, I have to caution the participants if you are not dealing with these operations very frequently and you face that problem in the operating room and the root is dissected and it will require a lot of finessing uh, to fix it. And some of the videos, they show the excellent way to create that new media that stabilizes the aortic root. Please don't hesitate to replace the aortic valve. The experts will repair that valve. There's no question about that. But uh, for the surgeons who face that problem in the middle of the night, uh, the, the, the best thing that you can do for the patient, and I want to emphasize that, as Dr. Crawford used to say, is to get the patient out of the operating room alive. Then we'll deal with the subsequent problems, but you need to have a patient who uh, survived. 
we just uh, launched another poll, uh, what, what people do, and it's very interesting uh, regarding hypothermia. Uh, the majority of the, of the people do uh, moderate hypothermia and circulatory arrest and undergrade cerebral perfusion. Uh, quite, quite uh, the difference is uh, quite significant uh, between deep hypothermia and undergrade versus moderate hypo hypothermia and undergrade. Uh, I think uh, we have uh, uh, Derek with us. Derek, we, we knew that you were in surgery. That takes priority. <laughs> over yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, we, we can hear you very well. We All right. Thank you. you. My well. apologies for being late. No, no, no. We understand absolutely very well. Uh, Derek, since you are here, uh, we have asked a number of questions. We have done a number of polling. But forget about what you would do. Okay, we know experts will do more in, 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 in aortic dissection. What you would advise a person who faces a type aortic dissection in the middle of the morning um, in a non-aortic center to do for an uncomplicated type aortic dissection? What will be, what will be the procedure for, for, for that particular situation? Well, I think uh, less is more. My, my feeling, even in this healthcare system is that you are in it for the short term and you know our use of more complicated procedures such as frozen elephant trunk and arches is extremely uh, reduced to those patients that absolutely need it. I think that if you look at all the data in terms of uh, survival, et cetera, it's, it's based upon the first index procedure, excuse me. And then after that, Patients with dissections die from unrelated causes. It's not related to their dissection. If they pass 30 days and they don't get malperfusion, the obvious things are age, ejection fraction, and renal insufficiency. Those are why patients die in 10 years. It's not about their dissection. It's not about their reop. So we're, we're not aggressive about the arch. Uh, you know, we, we put frozen elephant trunks in for malperfusion and probably, you know, we, we lean towards a frozen elephant trunk for young patients, meaning less than 60 years old. In terms but, of the root, if the valve can be salvaged uh, with just a straight up ascending aorta, hemi-arch, no clamp, then that's what we do. Uh, so what you recommend is to do the simpler operation possible, which is maybe an ascending aorta, ascending hemi-arch at the most. Absolutely. And, and, and reserve the more complicated procedures uh, for, you know, this these peculiar cases with malperfusion, et cetera, et cetera. That Chris, what do you think about uh, Derek's opinion on that issue? Do you, you know, you have like a 60, 70 year old patient, you know, stable again. Do you just replace the ascending aorta, maybe a hemi-arch and finish with that and get out of the operating room? What oh, do you I agree think? with Derek and uh, Derek has a great video on CTSnet. I watched it last night, beautiful video. Thank you, Chris. Um, um, for most of the patients that we see, um, I think there's three, three key points. The first is uh, axillary cannulation. Uh, the second is aortic valve resuspension can be done in most patients, um, including patients with severe AR that is caused by the dissection. And uh, two key points for the valve resuspension is uh, getting those transmural pledged stitches at the top of the commissures and also obliterating the false lumen. The third part of the operation is um, an open distal anastomosis with resection of all the ascending aorta and part of the hemi-arch if you need to get to the primary entry tear. So with those three things, which we showed in our video, I think you'd be able to treat most of the patients who come in with type aortic dissections. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not sure we have a, you know, quote, unquote, standard operation. Um, uh, I think uh, the advice that was just given is solid advice. Um, most people, if you can do a valve resuspension, felt neo media, really get a good proximal. You want a good proximal, essentially, whether that's a root valve sparing or, or, or resuspension and a good distal, whether that's a hemi arch or zone two total arch frozen elephant trunk. But, um, you know, I think it's key. I think uh, Dr. Brinster said, you know, you're in it for the moment which is, you know, you have a, a catastrophe, get the patient through a good operation, um, you know, make sure your distal is good, take time on that, make sure your proximal is good, take time on that, and then you can sort of live to fight another day. 
Um, you know, if the arch is, is involved, um, I would agree. I think a more extended arch operation is appropriate, whether that's a zone two or total arch, um, but it's really patient specific. Uh, I would agree with all of you. I think, uh, you know, doing a, the simpler operation possible, uh, unless you are in a center of excellence that a lot of vertex surgery is being done, uh, maybe it's the best option for the patient live to fight the battle at a different time. That being said, um, I would like uh, Sultan to describe us the neo-media formation. I think it's a very critical part of this operation because it creates substance that you can put sutures without fearing of tearing. How do you create the neo-media? There are many videos. I, I, I recommend the viewers to go and watch the videos. They are critical videos. Uh, um, uh, but I would like you to describe to us how do you do that? Because I think this is a very important part for the, for the participants and, and, and the viewers. Yeah, Dinos, this was, uh, you know, this was popularized by Joe Bavaria and, and, the, and the Penn Group. Uh, you know, we, we really just take a piece of Teflon felt and, and cut it into a semicircle and uh, essentially pick all the thrombus and, uh, and debris out of the false lumen and kind of make what fits in there. So we don't use any external or internal uh, Teflon felt uh, at all, or glue for that matter. All we use is that uh, felt neomedia. And you can use it with a piece of your Dacron graft, or you can use a Teflon felt, either way it works. And I think, uh, you know, treat it like a sandwich, uh, put it right between your uh, adventitia and intima. And obviously, as long as there's no tears there and it's just dissection, uh, you know, and, and you're taking a relatively deeper bite of the adventitia and intima and a superficial bite of the uh, Teflon felt that kind of dunks it in there and gives you a nice uh, substance to sew through when you're doing your anastomosis. Do you, uh, do, do, do you use bioglue to put them together or you don't use any bioglue? What about Derek? Derek, do you use that technique, the neomedia formation? Yes. Well, well, we don't always do neomedia. If it's a bad dissection going into the arch, we will put a, a tongue of felt in there. But we usually do the sandwich in, in you know, the intima and then outside the adventitia. Sometimes the media, if it's a really bad dissection. Yeah, no, I, I, think, uh, I think it's a good technique, which whatever way you use it, so that you can stabilize the, you can stabilize the aorta so you can suture uh, something with substance. Uh, do you guys use uh, uh, pledged sutures to reinforce uh, this anastomosis? Uh, when and how? That's another important question that I, I get a lot of questions about reinforcement of the anastomosis. How do you reinforce it um, after you, you do the neomedia? Or neomedia is enough. Uh, if, uh, if uh, Joshua could start with that. Sure, we use the neomedia just as uh, Ibrahim had described it. And, and as long as you've got a good sort of robust layer of tissue to sew to with uh, native aorta and then felt, we don't use any additional suture unless there's an area that's bleeding. Um, we tend just to rely on that neomedia repair proximal. And if you're doing a hemiarch distal as well, uh, and then reinforce as needed. Um, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, let me go to the next topic and we'll come back again with bleeding. Uh, what uh, we talked about the standard operation. When you would do some more extensive operations, when you do the aortic arts, what will be a couple of indications that you have to, uh, you have to address the aortic arts? And we can start with Derek. Derek, when you will do aortic heart surgery, these are complex patients, and even for aortic surgeons, these operations are very difficult operations. I agree. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we do a, a lot of dissections, and I would say I've probably done a total arch uh, maybe twice out of the last, you know, 50 cases. And it's usually because I think that the intima and adventitia have torn all the way around the usually lesser curvature, and I'm concerned about hemostasis after that. I think with the frozen elephant trunk, a lot of times those concerns can be obviated and you can you know, use a covered stent graft to cover you know, the left subclavian artery, nail down the intima and provide you know, almost uh, arch if you, if you have the frozen elephant trunk and hemi-arch sewn together on the lesser curvature. Um, so it's really thin. Uh, only for concerns of bleeding, rupture, or when the dissection appears that was, you know, retrograde from the arch downward, 
and that we're concerned that the integrity of our distal anastomosis is in question. That's when I would do a total arch. Let me be very specific in that question, and I think uh, I will ask Chris to address that. So you, you have a tear in the ascending aorta, you open the aortic arch, and, and in my experience, quite often in, in aortic arch, secondary tears, you see a tear between the left carotid and the innominate artery. Uh, what do you do there? You just tuck the tear, you excise the tear? What, what is your feeling regarding that particular situation? In that particular case, we're looking to do a, a total arch. I think there's two indications or two recommendations where surgeons should uh, seriously consider doing an arch operation. It's not mandatory, but consider it, is that if there is a tear in the arch, which cannot be resected with a extended um, bevel. So you can't get it all out with an extreme bevel on the underside of the arch. And the second uh, recommendation is probably if the patient has some sort of malperfusion, whether that's cerebral or downstream malperfusion, and you're not quite sure that uh, you're going to get established true lumen flow, I think that's an excellent uh, case to do an elephant trunk procedure in addition to your arch operation. Again, I have to emphasize to our viewers, these are not your typical situations. These are more extreme situations. And, uh, you know, if you face this unpredictable situation, you have to do the best you can. But I agree with, the, with the, both uh, Derek and Chris. Uh, these are the cases that you may need to do a, a little bit more of extensive, uh, extensive surgery to fix the problem. Uh, and, and, you know, these are technically complex operations. They are not easy operations. Let me get some of the questions here. Uh, patient who, who had previous uh, coronary artery bypass grafting uh, uh, comes a few years later on with intramural hematoma. Ibrahim, what do you think? Do we, there is no flow into the, you know, false lumen. Do you wait it out a little bit? What do you do? Yeah, I, th I think we've learned a lot from our uh, you know, East Asian colleagues about this. I think they, they manage this very differently than, than I think American surgeons do. Uh, you know, we have become much more conservative uh, about these patients. Uh, so it depends on the thickness of the hematoma. It depends on, you know, typically these patients don't have malperfusions. And uh, we admit these patients and repeat a CT scan in 24 hours. I mean, especially it's a redo. IMH, uh, repeat a CT scan if the IMH thickness, you know, enlarges, if patients have persistent pain, uh, you know, there's some evidence of malperfusion, uh, AR, et cetera. I think those are the reasons to potentially go after, or if the patient has an aortic aneurysm to begin with, which is actually relatively common in these redos when they come in with IMH. Uh, so those are kind of, you know, our go-to moves. So you will you 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 will you will wait it out a little bit. You're not going to jump, you know, to do an operation immediately. Josh, what do you think about that scenario? Yeah, I would agree with uh, what Ibrahim said. I think you know, barring malperfusion, uh, a, you know, a gigantic ascending aorta, or a, uh, a hematoma that's greater than a centimeter in an elderly patient, redo largely asymptomatic. I think it's uh, totally reasonable to wait 24 to 48 hours re-image. Uh, see if the uh, IMH has changed or if the aorta has changed at all. Maybe there's some kind of dynamic process that, that is now changing. Close, close, uh, close observation, I see those critical. Yeah. Uh, that's a reasonable approach, particularly in elderly individuals. And, you know, you can always go back. I mean, there is a lot of scarring, so there's no pericardial space. You know, usually the, there is the blood flow through the coronaries prevent you from left, left main dissection. So you have a lot of safety here. A lot of questions that I'm getting is uh, uh, two questions. Number one, what do you think about glues, like bioglue, variety of glues that they exist? What do you guys think about that? Uh, let's start with Roland. What do you think about bioglue? Do you put bioglues after you finish? Do you no. recommend that? <laughs> no, I don't. The only place we put basically, I put two drops of bioglue is when we do the Neomedia felt. Just like Ibrahim described, the only difference is, you know, we I learned to do this with putting a couple drops of bioglue inside the wall of the aorta. So there's no glue exposed outside or inside the aorta. But, you know, uh, and, you know, we don't, you know, we, we are afraid that the bioglue actually can can basically hide the bleeder that might show up later as a pseudoaneurysm. Yeah. Uh, what about Chris? Chris, what do you think about that? Do you use any bioglue around the anastomosis or... Any other glue? 
Well, I think the biologic glue or the glutaraldehyde based um, adhesives, um, like you, I use them for the root um, uh, root reconstruction. I use it for when I want to obliterate the uh, false lumen. So I put that in between the layers. I don't use any uh, felt in between. And I think there's a couple key key points to using the biologic glue. And the first is to use very little. Um, yes. uh, Roland said just use a couple drops. I think that's 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 uh, that's that's a good way to think about it. And make sure you control that glue. I saw that in your um, video, uh, Dinos. You yes. can't let that glue come out. You can't let it yeah. go down coronary arteries. You can't let it touch nerves. Uh, but if you can control the glue, use very little. It's very effective in obliterating the false lumen in the aortic root during your valve resuspension. I think I agree with you, Chris. I think that's a critical point in the sense that this little glue can, you know, cre create truly a media, uh, and you have the intima, the adventitia attached. That, that tissue is very leathery. You can put the sutures through. You know, it's very strong, very strong tissue, which comes to to, to the point. What do we do to prevent bleeding? I mean, you know, everybody knows that uh, early dissections are prone to bleeding. And yes, we have uh, physiologic issues, but let's talk about technical issues. And let me start with Ibrahim. Ibrahim, what, 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 what is your technique to prevent bleeding from the proximal and distal anastomosis? Besides putting that, uh, that uh, piece of uh, Teflon felt in between, are there any other techniques that uh, you like to use under those circumstances to prevent bleeding? I think the, the simplest thing that I do think makes a big difference is to intersuscept the graft inside the aorta. I think if you intersuscept the graft nicely, and I think this is, you know, when you're walking, you know, when you're fellow or whoever's in the operation, if you're on the left side, I think really to park that graft inside the aorta. And I think that makes all the difference. And, and you know, on the topic of glue, you know, I've learned to hate glue after doing a bunch of redos uh, for, for pseudos and otherwise, and it just makes it very, very, dis you know, that, that's, that's where the hate comes from. Uh, uh -huh. but, uh, but, you know, I, I personally don't use that, but that's really what I focus on. Uh, I, I really focus on making sure that the, the anastomosis is truly intersuscepted and, and checking it before you come off. Invariably, some patients are going to have weaker tissues than others. And invariably, there's going to be some bleeding. But I think that's the one thing you can do to really help yourself. Derek, uh, what do you think about that? What I do you think, do? What uh, is your technique? Yeah, so, you know, I think Abraham bring up a good point about reops and glue. It's, a, it's very painful. But what I hate even more is uh, post-op hemorrhage. So I think using the little bit of glue, uh, making sure it's not, you know, a gallon or a bucket of glue at the root, I like it. Um, so that's one of the methods to uh, prevent bleeding. Um, we use, in our video, we commented on it, but on a lot of our re-ops and our major cases, we give four of FFP when we're down to two liters and it looks like we're going to separate successfully I feel that it prevents kind of this post-operative flood of blood products, you know, going to the patient and, you know, you might have RV distension or something like that. And then we typically give 10 units of cryo and a bag of platelets, see where we kind of end up. And then we usually give FIBA. That's our preferred, you know, uh, method. And we give the FIBA, I tell the anesthesiologist to give it over 30 minutes. So we kind of don't have a pendulum swing to hypercoagulable state. And then we see where we're at. If we got really bad bleeding, uh, we'll give a touch of factor seven or another dose of FIBA after that. And all of these, you know, we try and give over a very prolonged time because I'm sure every institution has stories about where these activated products have uh, resulted in, you know, intracardiac thrombus or something like that. Um, so we give it uh, over a longer duration uh, as best as possible. Uh, Chris, uh Give us a little bit your algorithm. Uh, what, what do you do under those circumstances? So we're talking, and we, I want to hear both regarding the technical aspects, as well as, for example, you use uh, factor seven, uh, as uh, Derek said, or K-Centra. Uh, these are, these are uh, very powerful uh, uh, coagulants that can be helpful. How do you handle it? I think for the issue of bleeding, this is where surgical technique counts. So um, uh, what I do is I give the residents a 4-0 proline. Typically I use a 3-0 polypropylene for my aortic anastomosis in elective cases. And um, I have the resident take time 
making those bites, you're only circ you're really only uh, doing two circles, and uh, you have to wait to cool and rewarm anyway. The bites have to be perfect, 90 degrees through the plane of the aorta, no torque. Suture holes matter in these cases. That will determine how long it takes you to to uh, clean up afterwards. Um, we also we also take advantage of the fact that we have. Um, protein concentrate complex now. So there's several on the market. Um, I think those are very effective. We give those very, very early um, in place of giving large volumes of plasma or cryoprecipitate. So I think the uh, PCCs have been a great advance, have been great advance for um, the management of bleeding in type aortic dissections. No, I agree with you. And, and I want to point out, we, you talked about the technique and uh, and I think that's a very important part uh, because the way that you put the needle and the way that you turn the needle, you can make the hole smaller or bigger. You know? So I fully agree with you. I think it's a very important part as to how you're going to fix it. Uh, Roland, what do you think? I totally agree with, uh, with everyone, Ibrahim, Chris, and Derek. So I think it's absolute perfect technique, no torque, no tearing. Every single stitch has to be perfect. It doesn't matter how much time you take. Uh, because that what makes you know that what makes the case basically, and then at the end you know uh, you, you know over time I learned that really giving FIBA early on makes a huge difference. It's actually like magic, you know, difference it makes, and it's it's very relevant especially for patients. You know, more and more patients now show up and they have NOAC in their system. That's I think it's it's very effective for these patients as well. In addition to the uh, monoclonal antibody, but many times FIBA really is a lifesaver in these cases. Uh, Ibrahim, what is your feeling about, uh, uh, about bleeding and how do you prevent it both from the technical perspective, meaning pledged sutures, bioglue, etc., as well as from the physiologic standpoint, uh, different uh, coagulants like K-Centra or, uh, or Factor 7? Yeah, as I mentioned, I mean, I think the technical part is the most important part. I think intersuscepting your graft and the anastomosis is absolute key using appropriate, uh, you know, neomedia always helps. And, and, you know, typically what we do our cocktail is, uh, uh, you know, if there is excessive bleeding after protamine, we give uh, two, uh, 10 of cryo, two bags of platelet and a, mil and a milligram of factor seven. Uh, I have used uh, K-Centra uh, twice and I've had horrible experiences both times. Uh, but I think uh, it, it, I think what Derek pointed out, giving it over time, I think makes a huge difference. Uh, so, but that's our standard yep. cocktail if we see excessive bleeding. We don't necessarily use it in everyone. Uh, typically, we use it based on our data about 30 to 40 percent of the time. Joshua, what is the pen way of dealing with that problem? Well, I think I think the, these guys have really hit on the head. Um, you know, I, I agree with edges deception. Choosing an appropriate size Dacron graft, you know, undersizing can have its problem with, you know, creating flutes uh, if you're creating torque in the tissue. Um, and then I agree, I think Ibrahim uh, uh, had said this earlier, you know, test your proximal. We use a Verde needle and you can give plesia down the root, clamp the top, and it's sort of, you can get a pressure of two, 200, 250 uh, and see if you, need, if you have any major holes that need, that need uh, additional sutures. Um, you're going to have needle hole bleeding because it's, it's super thin, obviously, but um, it'll give you an idea of what your proximal looks like. Um, if you have to, if you, if you preserve the root and you come up bypass and you have to start putting repair stitches, uh, that's when things get sort of hairy. Um, and you can sort of lose control of your proximal anastomosis. And then we have a, a sort of a graduated approach to a resuscitation, um, really big on replacing fibrinogen losses and platelets due to the circ arrest. Uh, and then if we need to, you can get factor seven. Uh you know, listen, time is already 11.59, believe it or not. You know, we, we had a wonderful discussion. Uh, I would like to thank you personally, Josh, uh, Ibrahim, Ronald, Chris, uh, and Derek for, uh, number one, uh, coming here today to talk about your experience to a lot of cardiac surgeons who I hope that they get a benefit from that discussion, particularly when they take care of these complex patients. And again, I would like to thank... Uh, uh, Joe Dunning, uh, who started this, uh, this wonderful idea, uh, Catherine Joyce, uh, for uh, making that happen with your staff, uh, as well as uh, the sponsors, that they sponsor this wonderful event, and Jackie, my nurse, who's sitting next to me without hair, forget about that, nothing would have happened, you know. So, again, I would like to thank everybody for participating and looking forward maybe to the uh, next one.
Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.